in Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, is where we'll pick it up tonight. It's rather difficult to nail down a precise order of events or time frame in the first five chapters of Joshua, but the following is, is likely. In Joshua 1, at the beginning of the month of Abib, the first month in the year 1406 B.C., uh, the Lord encourages Joshua at Shittim in his new role as Israel's leader. This is about the same time Joshua sends the spies to Jericho in chapter 2. Then on the 5th of Abib, Israel travels from Shittim to the east bank of the Jordan, camps there for four more days in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Then in chapter 3, verse 7 to 424, on the 10th of that month, Israel crosses the river, sets up two memorials, and then camps at Gilgal for the night in 510. The people then eat the first produce of the land of Canaan on the 15th of the month, which also begins the seven-day feast of unleavened bread in 511. In 512, the manna from heaven stops falling. This will be on the 15th or the 16th. This is only a two-week period in the history of Israel. Geographically speaking, it just stretches from Shittim to Gilgal. But it's one of the most significant portions of the whole Old Testament era. The Lord's relentless faithfulness in the history of salvation is on full display, as well as the affirmation of the promise of the salvation that will be inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus and consummated at His second coming. 700 years after these events, the prophet Micah will reiterate how meaningful these two weeks were for Israel. He shows that the events that took place in those days fully displayed, adequately displayed the righteousness of the Lord. Micah presents this courtroom scene, if you will, where Israel has no defense for acting like they weren't aware of the justice and mercy of the Lord. They know what he did at Shittim and Gilgal. That's what Micah references. He writes, Oh, my people, remember now your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Micah 6 Verse 5. Now there are three verses still left in chapter 5 tonight, but we're we're, uh, at the end of the first major section of the book. We've seen the Lord preparing Israel to inherit the land so far. Now comes the second major part, the narrative of Israel receiving the inheritance, taking the land, which begins with this amazing encounter tonight between Joshua and this commander of the Lord's army. And beloved, what becomes evident to us here as we look from Joshua to Israel to Christ to us, is that if the Lord doesn't fight for us, there will be no salvation. If He doesn't come and win the victory, there is no victory. There's no hope of victory. But what happens here prefigures the blessed fact that the Lord is not afraid to get His hands dirty with this world and with our sin God is the Lord who fights for His people to win their salvation for them. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word and for the truth that You proclaim to us concerning Your Son on every page and every story of Scripture. Open our minds tonight to receive Your Word. Be with us. Keep out the distractions that would take this lesson from us. May the evil one not be able to rob us of what we hear this night. We ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Picking up in verse 13 of chapter 5. 
When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Yahweh has come down to fight the battle. Notice the similarities between this encounter and that of Moses at the burning bush in Exodus, at the beginning of that event. This is no mere man, nor is this a mere angel. This is the Lord Himself. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. When Joshua falls down to worship, this commander of the army of the Lord doesn't tell him to get up. He doesn't tell him to stop, as the angel said to John in Revelation 22, 9. And in verse 15, this man repeats what the Lord told Moses to do when he was in God's very presence. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And wherever Jesus is, whether it's in Israel or in Canaan, it is holy ground. Could there be any greater assurance that the victory will be theirs than the appearance of the Lord himself on the road made visible to Joshua as a man, as a commander with his sword in his hand? This time, the Lord is there to fight. His sword is drawn. The chapter break here between 5 and 6 is completely unnecessary. Nobody really knows in uh, study notes and commentaries why the scribes put it here. But you don't need it. In fact, it skews the storyline. If there was going to be a chapter break, it should have come at 6.5. So let's read on here to get the full meaning. Coming right out of 5.15, we pick it up in 6.1. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Verse 1, if you, if you didn't see... You know, that chapter break there, it's a, it's a parenthetical remark that lets us know that while the commander of the Lord appears to Joshua on the road, the city of Jericho is now completely impenetrable. You can't get in, you can't get out. The gates are shut. They're hidden behind their great walls that no one has been able to conquer. Israel is drastically unprepared for this kind of warfare, for attacking or conquering a city with a wall. They don't have anything that they can use to attack this wall. Verse 1 tells us why the commander of the Lord's army has come. Because without him, victory is going to be impossible. If that's what Jericho has done and you can't get in, how are you going to fight? They can just pick you off with archers from the wall. In verse 2, the commander of the Lord's army is still speaking. That's why the break really harms it. It's certainly appropriate at the beginning of their military campaign that the Lord appears as a warrior for Joshua and for Israel. This means that ultimately the burden of victory doesn't rest on Joshua. It's not up to him or to the twelve tribes. It's on the Lord. 
It's certainly strange and unexpected, but when Joshua receives the command to remove his sandals, notice that's exactly what he does. At the very least, he senses, this is the Lord. I'm in the presence of the Lord. This encounter, if you'll notice, wasn't to give instructions primarily, but to bring about Joshua's submission to the Lord. Are you for us or for our adversaries? No, I'm not. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Beloved, the Lord is for the Lord. God is His own side. He means to accomplish salvation for the world. Never forget. Never forget the promise to Abraham. That's ultimately what God is after here. What He's doing through Israel is a parenthesis in His plan for the whole world. That's who and what He's fighting for ultimately. So the conquest of Canaan is not the end game for God's plan in the world where when it's done, Israel can just put their feet up and the rest of the world can just go on to hell. No, God is here to fight and win the victory because He means to bring salvation. This is another step in the fulfillment of His overarching plan. That is the side the Lord is on, His own side. Just consider the crazy instructions you read here. Who else could conceive of such a plan but God? And how much clearer could God prove that Israel's army isn't going to tear down the walls and accomplish the victory? They're not going to do it. But God will act by His own power to do it. Dale Ralph Davis says that sometimes we need to see that God is not so much partisan as sovereign. It is more important to recognize God's position than to know God's plans. If the Lord is on His side, He is already on our side. Because He's not only holy and just, He's gracious and merciful and loving. We need the right relationship with the Lord more than we need the Lord to always lay out the path before us. But this can only be achieved for us, a right relationship with the Lord by the commander of the Lord's army. When we read in verse 2, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's not only surprising, given that, well, how is that the case? It's shut up for everyone. We haven't even fought yet. Nothing has happened. It's also extremely encouraging to Joshua to hear that before the fight even starts. Greater obstacles for God's people generally mean a greater appearance of God's power for them. Let's pick it up in verse 6 here. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. 
And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. Just imagine living in Jericho and watching this happen for a straight week. What would you have been thinking was going on? How could the, the anxiety get any greater inside the city walls? What are they bracing for? Again, it's such a strange method for attacking the city of Jericho. What do you have here? You have armed men that are there, but they're not fighting, not doing anything. They're just marching. Seven priests every day blowing ram's horns. The whole time they circle. The Ark of the Covenant is there. The rear guard. This this is the caravan circling Jericho each day. And then seven times on the seventh day. By day seven, the people of Jericho have to be asking, what, what is this? What, what are they doing? But notice that just as it was at the Jordan River, the Ark of the Covenant again takes center stage. The Israelites already know the Ark is the visible presence of the Lord Himself. Chapter 6 refers to the Ark ten times. Nine of them are in the verses I just read. So the author is making sure we know it's front and center. It's the presence of the Lord in the middle of His people that they've known since the Jordan is in the Ark, signified by the Ark, that will make all the difference. The people aren't allowed to shout, according to verse 10, until they get the signal. Imagine just, you can't say anything. You can't open your mouth at all. You can't scream. You can't yell. You just march. What this section really demonstrates is how central God's presence is and how completely passive the people are. They're, they're not doing anything to win this victory. They can't even open their mouths until the Lord's signal let alone put up any fight. In this case, even though they'll be involved in the following combat after the walls fall down and the cleanup effort, God's people won't contribute to the actual overthrow of the city at all. They will contribute nothing to the victory. We don't help with salvation. We don't help with salvation. We couldn't even cry out. We couldn't even shout out in faith if God does not move within us by His Spirit. God insists on bypassing their activity that His glory and His power might be magnified so that Israel knows who it is that is going before them into Canaan. Now, how are they ever going to doubt this God and turn on this God? And listen, they are. And they're going to do it relatively quickly. But how could it be questioned? How could it be doubted? Don't we understand? We see in Israel's failings not something to look down on, but how desperately wicked we are and how quickly we forget and how if we were left to ourselves, we wouldn't win anything, much less our salvation. But if Israel just marches and shouts as God's commanded, there's going to be no doubt in Canaan who it was that brought the wall to the ground. Pick it up in verse 16. And at the seventh time, When the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Now, you're anticipating a shout right there. It doesn't doesn't come. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. 
but all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Briefly here, although we we probably could spend a whole sermon just talking about, if we wanted to do like an excursus, about holy war, right? This is sanctioned by God. They kill everyone in the city. You know what that means. That means men, women, and children, and all the animals. And it's, I think if we took too much time on it, we'd probably speculate to the point of doubt or uncertainty or frustration with it. I, I would say this. We started the fight against God. We started it in the Garden of Eden. Right? We made a willful decision to rebel against God. We have already declared... We don't want you as our king. You're our enemy. And, and so when we talk about holy war, at the very least, don't think that you have all these basically God-fearing innocent people doing the best that they can to live holy, and God just wipes them out without mercy. These are rebels. They're pagans. They're wicked. They were vile people. Right? Now, Israel's not any better, but we don't see that yet. You don't really see that until you get to Judges. And you realize by the end of Judges, oh my, they're no better than the Canaanites around them. They're the same brutal, vicious, horrible people. But here you don't know that. So all I'm saying in that is, is that you can't use this today to justify war. That you can't do that. Or to justify killing. That's not what this text is for. But at the same time, before we think, oh, all these poor, innocent people. No, these are not poor, innocent people. Okay? And... and the Lord, when He decides to pour out wrath, you can't question it. I mean, nobody's getting what they don't deserve here. This is what happens when people get what they deserve. And listen, God wants people to see that. And I know that's hard. But do you know where that culminated? God wanting us to know for sure what it would look like if He poured out His wrath on each one of us. That is what is clear at Calvary. When it's God's own Son that is put on the chopping block for us and whipped and punched and beaten and spit on, hung naked and nailed to a tree and flogged and all these things God would eventually put His own Son forward for the life of the world so again, we always have to go back to the cross when we have troubling questions of what God is doing, I'm not going to pretend that the conquest of Canaan because they're going to do this more than once And maybe we'll take some time later on down the road. But here, just understand, these are not, you know, don't think of cute little folks just doing their own thing with some cultural vibe and the Israelites just come in and wipe them out. These are are evil pagans. And so, we're not God. We don't dole out this kind of judgment. But just again, don't get it in your head that God is just being mean. No, we, we... We started this war, not God. God is just ending it here. The author constructs this little section very strangely here, really. We already know from God's instructions in verse 5 and Joshua's command back in verse 10 that on the marching circuit of the seventh day, 
And only when given the explicit command, the people are to shout. So, again, the most natural sequence after verse 10 is to immediately hear the people shouting, but then you have this interlude. You have this delay in the action again before they actually do it all the way down in verse 20. You're thinking, well, don't interrupt the story now. What happens? But he does. Right after the command to shout, the people apparently restrain themselves because Joshua is elaborating not only on the warning God gives for what they're not allowed to take, and then of taking anything that they do take for themselves, he also gives the instructions for how Rahab and her household will be saved in the midst of God's wrath on the city. The author's little delay of the climax between the command and the shout is for a very specific reason. It's because what Joshua says in verses 17 through 19 is more important than when the walls fall down in verse 20. The minute we hear at the beginning of chapter 6 that God is going to give them the city, it's, it's a foregone conclusion. right? You, you don't have anything to worry about. The, the walls are going to fall. Jericho is going to be conquered. right? Duh, it's, it's God. God said He's given them the city. The city is theirs. The priority here is Israel's obedience to the Lord's command as their covenant Lord over victory in and of itself. Just how important this is and why you see this extended story here will become painfully clear, literally, in chapter 7. Now, we are usually much more interested nowadays, aren't we, just by nature, in grand experiences than we are with just daily, faithfully submitting to the Lord's commands in everyday life. We we don't want our faith to be mundane, just trying to, to... follow Jesus in our own homes and at our own jobs and or at school or something. We want bigger. We want grander. When the important thing is, listen, where I, wherever, I've, wherever I have placed you, follow me there. Obey me there. Whatever I've told you to do, do that. Don't try to... We seek out, though, what we think is better or more miraculous. And in so doing, without meaning to, question whether the Word is delivered is sufficient for our faith. That's why the Father admonishes us through the disciples in Luke 9.35. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Jesus is and has said everything we need from God. If somebody was making a movie out of Joshua 6, what do you think would be the big point of the movie? Right? What do you think they would focus on and give all the detail to and all the time? It would be the crumbling of the walls and the attack on the city following the valiant skills of the soldiers there would be so much drama built up into it the way that even when when someone's attempting to make a you know a christian film or what they call a faith-based film nowadays nine times out of ten they whitewash the story because like the that, that movie one night with the king about esther and a Hoosieress and all this they really i mean it's a, it's a fine movie but they really cleaned up that story for audiences i mean the way esther got all that done is not PG. Okay, let's just be honest. So, um, but but again, we want we want the drama, we want the romance, we want the big story, we want the, the that that often drives how we view the end times and eschatology. We want it to be big and grand and all this. And it's so if we were making a movie out of this, we're making the, the climax of the film is is the crumbling of the walls and all this. Our writer doesn't do that. He briefly mentions those things very matter-of-factly in one and a half verses. Verse 20 and 21. So the city fell down and they went in and got everything. The end. Right? That's all he says about it. 
That should help us understand when we're reading a narrative. Okay, so, because remember, you can trace, like, like in the epistles, you can trace the arguments to understand what's being said. In narratives, it's much harder to figure out, okay, why are you telling me this? So, the reason narrative is written off in the way that it is, is how the author is trying to tell you what he wants you to see. And so the fact that you see a very brief statement about what we think is the big part, the wall falling down and the Israelites taking the city, you get one and a half verses on that and all these extended instructions to the people. Why? And, and about rescuing Rahab. Because the point is, just listen to the Lord. Have faith in Him. Do what He says. Pick it up in verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there, there the women and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. And at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. In the midst of this mighty wall crashing to the ground and Israel rushing in their first victory in the promised land, the down payment on the fact that if they will follow the Lord, this land is theirs. They're going to have zero problems taking the land if they just follow the Lord. Zero. God God is fighting for them. What do they have to worry about? You don't really focus on the action. You focus on these instructions and then what do you focus on? Oh yeah, that prostitute we mentioned back in chapter 2. We get an extended paragraph on the fact that they saved her just as they promised and her whole household. Her whole household. And now she is in the family of Israel. Because, again, it's a no-brainer that God can destroy city walls. It's a no-brainer that Jesus can walk on water. What's astounding, what ought to be astounding, what's actually supernatural, is the salvation of prostitutes in Canaan. Which is just what we are. There is salvation even in the judgment of Jericho because God's word stands. When God promises to save, he saves even in the midst of walls and chaos. In between verses 21 and 24, the notices of Jericho's destruction is the story of salvation and rescue, just like always with God. Here is what God prefers to do. Here is what is natural to God. To do wrath doesn't come about until we sin. The Bible never says God is wrath. The Bible tells us God is holy and God is love and God is faithful and God is sovereign. Wrath is a holy response to sin on the part of God. What's natural to him, what he wants to do, what he's working to do is what he does for Rahab and for Israel here. Rahab and her loved ones are not only rescued, they're brought into the family of God's people. The first 
step into Canaan and they take on a Canaanite into the family of God. I wonder how the Israelites treated her. How they looked at her. This prostitute that didn't really agree to worship the Lord in fullness, but just said, I don't want to die. You guys can hide here if you want. She doesn't have to spend 40 years in the wilderness. She doesn't have to go through slavery in Egypt. Why is she among the family? Well, because God is filled with mercy. You say, well, how can you say that when the whole city's killed and only Rahab and her family live? Because they should have died too. Nobody deserved to live. Rahab certainly didn't. You and I, I don't. I don't deserve to live. So when, when we get angry with God about things like this conquest of Canaan or, or just confused or our faith is threatened, is God actually good when He seems so malicious here? Beloved, the fact that God saves anybody when everybody deserves death and condemnation is amazing. Just be thankful. We ought to be in the city getting slaughtered by the commander of the army of the Lord. When she was afraid of God's wrath, Rahab fled to God's mercy. And He welcomed her. God didn't reject her and say, you're not part of my people. We're doing a conquest here. Your job here is to die. I don't have mercy for Canaanites. Well, apparently He does. So even in His wrath, He's not without mercy. This is God we're talking about, not some angry general. God remembered His promise to Abraham that through His seed, He would bless all the nations. The rescue of Rahab is another down payment on the coming fulfillment of that promise in Christ. She hoped and prayed for God's mercy, and she got it full stop. In the family of God. This pagan Gentile prostitute and her family now stand within the circle of God's chosen people. Which ought to sound very familiar to you and I tonight. Because God would one day take those who are far off and bring them near, not by the blood of the people of Jericho, but by the blood of the Messiah. In Ephesians 2.13. He would be the one that died so the people of God might live and take the land. Through Joshua, God pronounces a curse, it seems, on anyone who tries to raise up what he tore down. Right? I love that. The implications of that. Don't try to rebuild when God tears down. Don't say guilty when God has said innocent. And he was with Joshua. And now, if you're the rest of Canaan, and somehow word spreads, or you see this, or hear of it, You've been put on notice. The Lord is God. And He is way more powerful than you are. Right? God is the Lord who fights for His people to win their salvation for them. You do realize, don't you, beloved, that this God is your Lord, right? The one who appeared before Joshua on the road appeared before us as you and I went careening into certain death. Jericho's walls are another symbol of what is insurmountable by us and with our own strength. And God brings down walls with a shout and a trumpet. What can He accomplish 
with the life and death and resurrection of the glorious, eternal, second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. What do we do? Oh, just listen. Just listen. That's what you do. You believe and listen. You receive the word and listen. And you don't open your mouth unless God tells you you need to open your mouth. That's salvation. Each of you needs to know tonight that Jesus loves you. He really does. You know that He's not angry with you anymore, right? You do realize that. I want you to realize that. It doesn't matter what you struggle with. Everybody in this room tonight, what is there, 20 of us, tops? Everybody in here is a sinner. Everybody in here that I can see, that I know of, has received the Lord for their salvation. You believe in Him. I believe that everybody in here wants to glorify God with their lives, their actions, their words. Some of us are probably doing much better at that than others. What difference does it make? You are loved by Jesus. You guys up there, guys and gal up there, all of you down here, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of you. It doesn't matter what I think of you. You are loved. Jesus loves you. He loves you. Oh, how He loves you and me. He fought the battle for you and I to be saved. And beloved, He won it. It's done. Jesus came down and got His hands dirty for us. Jesus came down and fought the battle. We were responsible for fighting. At the cross, as the blood flowed down, He was fighting the battle that would put an end to the war forever. Jesus has laid claim to your soul with much more power than Israel laid hold of Canaan that day. With God fighting for you, with God being the one pronouncing that no one can snatch you from His hand, (laughs) what wall do we think would stand against us? God has said things about you in His Word. And they're true. All those beautiful words about salvation and love and shepherd, those are your words. That's your Savior. The commander of the army of the Lord stands on the road in front of you. Jesus won salvation for us. It's finished. So it doesn't matter what you're struggling with. It doesn't matter when we're talking about our salvation. You sleep well tonight and every night after this one. He loves you. He fought for you. He's won for you. Believe that. Believe that. If I were to lose my life tonight or before we meet again, do me the honor of just remembering that I said that. Forget everything else I've ever said because who knows if there's any good in what I've said before that. But you believe that. All right? Would you stand, please?